Washington, too. Yeah, I forget what Washington did on the Potomac. This is the Potomac. Uh, black folks would sometimes refer to that as the Potomac. You see, but this is, this is the Potomac. I saw a duck floating out there a little while ago. Somebody said, yeah, but Reagan is in charge. We're all ducks. Dead ducks, you dig it? Symbols of democracy are pinned against the coast. The outhouse of bureaucracy surrounded by a moat. Citizens of poverty are barely out of sight. The overlords escape near evening, the brothers on the night. Morning come and bring the tourists straining rubber nicks. Perhaps a glimpse of the cowboy making the world a new perspective. It's a massive irony for all the world to see. It's the nation's capital, it's Washington, D.C. It's the nation's capital, it's the nation's capital, it's the nation's capital, it's Washington, D.C. friends and enemies. It's episode 66 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, welcome to the TMK Coding Academy. We're going we're gonna to be talking about why you need to learn to code, what kind of jobs can come from coding, and how coding is going to lead us out of the COVID recession, from COVID to coding. Uh, and, and to help us out with this, giving us these, these brilliant lessons, we're joined by uh, an assistant professor at the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland, um, and the author of a great book, Hot Off the Presses, I think last week, um, which, which we're here to discuss today, the, the promise of access, technology, inequality, and the political economy of hope. Uh, Dan Green, thanks for, thanks for coming on TMK. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I will be taking uh, subscriptions to the boot camp at the end of the show. <laughs> I'll, uh, like, I don't know, three Bitcoin a pop, we'll figure it out. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds very stupid. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah. So, as a, as a way to enter into, because your book gives this just really great uh, political economy history of uh, and policy around this idea of, of what you call the access doctrine, right? This idea that things like learning to code or access to technology um, are solutions to poverty. But as, as a way to enter into that and ground that larger discussion of the, of the political economy, the institutions, the people at the heart of this access doctrine, um, represented by these terms like the quote-unquote digital divide, I do want to kind of start with that learn to code mantra um, that is still repeated ad nauseum, right? I, I think a lot of listeners to TMK know 
or are at least somewhat familiar with the economic critique that, you know, what, ev- what, what learning to code really means is things like suppressing wages for coders, um, raising the floor of so-called necessary skills for employment. But your book tells a much deeper history of why that slogan has become this form of political common sense that still persists today. So maybe you could walk us through some of that history, you know, going back to like the economic policy um, reforms of like Clinton and Gore in the 90s, but even stretching all the way back to this neoliberal consensus of the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, so. There's there's been a lot of different people from from a lot of different intellectual and political traditions that have shown that this common sense, the idea that you can use technology to solve poverty, just doesn't work. Um, and and that has been true in the you know various economic senses that you've talked about that there straight up aren't that many jobs in software engineering. That has been true in the you know, the broader kind of development discourse of their poverty is just an extraordinarily complicated problem that uh, has a whole bunch of institutional context and geographic context and just throwing uh, skills or technology out there willy nilly is not going to uh, solve that problem. These are, you know, deep institutional issues. And that's, you know, I, I think pretty apparent to anyone who gives this a couple of seconds of thought. And there has been some brilliant people um, that I, that I build from like uh, Virginia Eubanks, Mark Warshauer, Peter Capelli, who, who show that this is not, uh, how it works and that poverty is much more complicated and that we need a much larger economic project to raise the wage floor, improve our schools, um, you know, have labor rights at work, the sort of things that create good jobs. But nonetheless, this thing sticks around. So what I was really interested in is, is why this idea that, you know, that has mutated over time from, from a digital device, digital inclusion to STEM gaps to the command to learn to code, why that sticks around, why it's immune to us correcting it, offering nuance, offering, you know, some option besides that binary. And I found the answer, um, looking back historically in this core contradiction of neoliberal poverty policy. And, you know, so on the one hand, since the, you know, the mid seventies, we're really picking up with Reagan. We have learned that there is unlimited opportunity. There are enough jobs out there. If you skill up, train up and move to the right place, you'll be okay. There's plenty of jobs. There's unlimited opportunity. On the other hand, that's hopeful story has been accompanied by you know, the largest policing and prison program that human civilization has ever seen. Keep throwing millions of people through the prison industrial complex. Uh, The forms of poverty relief that were built up after the Great Depression, you know, things like disability insurance, uh, unemployment insurance, food stamps, that kind of thing, are increasingly punitive, you know, and increasingly invasive. Uh, you know, you have to consent to a lot of surveillance. There are work requirements to it. So how is it that we could have these two things at the same time? You know, there's the unlimited opportunity on the one hand, but exacting punishment that seems to create a permanent racialized underclass on the other hand. You know, a punishment program of the working and workless poor, as, uh, as Ruthie Gilmore talks about it. That contradiction didn't really seem to bother the Reagan Republicans. Um, you know, they were 
perfectly fine at talking about welfare queens or, or what have you that you know you should just not do drugs and that they were they were fine creating a group of folks who were just outside this changing economy but that was different for the the Democrats who sought to reclaim the White House um, and from a long time the political wilderness after Carter got creamed and Carter was you know a momentary exception it was really pretty much an unbroken spring. Uh, string of uh, Republican leadership from Nixon through Bush two, and if not for that, uh, you know, early nineties recession, Bush two probably would have, or I'm sorry, Bush one probably would have continued on. So the Democrats were seeking to do something different, make it a, a story that would bring in more people and crucially bring in um, a new electoral base. So they were kind of ditching the New Deal coalition, both in terms of the people giving them money and the people voting for them. So at the top, this meant that there were a, a real push from especially finance and tech, but in general, um, export-oriented uh, firms with a global output that were usually pretty capital-intensive if they weren't based in financial services, um, and absolutely relied on maintaining English as the language of commerce after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. So these new donors came in, people from HP, MCI, Apple, that kind of stuff. And on the other hand, they look for a new electoral base. These are the people that other folks like uh, Lily Geismer have called the Atari Democrats. Or this is a label that they claim themselves, but this history has become really important lately. And instead of the racially diverse working class that came to the Democrats after the New Deal and increasingly after the civil rights movement, these were largely white office park professionals, people in Silicon Valley, along Route 128 in Massachusetts, uh, Montgomery County in Maryland, you know, places like this. They were wealthier folks that were big fans of formal equality. You know, they were, um, you know, happy to vote for measures uh, to support folks, uh, racialized minorities, but were resistant to um, redistributive measures, especially things that started to touch their wealth and their tax base. So, you know, large protests against, um, you know, what they called forced busing, which is, you know, reintegration of schools, that kind of thing. Not fans of having new housing developments, especially public housing in their neighborhoods. Largely ununionized people that had uh, almost entirely gone to college and advanced in a, up in a profession instead of a trade or a shop. And to recruit those folks and to regain the, you know, the economic reins from the Republicans, the Atari Democrats led by Clinton and Gore offered up the internet as the thing that would kind of resolve this contradiction between on the one hand, unlimited opportunity, and on the other hand, exacting punishment. Because the story went in a globalized world where communism was defeated everywhere the internet touched would offer an opportunity for competition. And that's what access meant to them deep down is even as like the Definition of access got more and more nuanced over time to involve various skills or the quality of your connection or all these different things. It boiled down to having the opportunity to compete in the global marketplace. You talk about, you know, Gore, for example, who, as as we all know, invented the internet. Uh, right. And climate change. I would yes. really like to take that idea pretty seriously, I think, in this book. <laughs> that, if, you know, even if he obviously is not the engineer, like, these guys, we got a very particular internet. Right. Very particular economic regime. And, you know, there really is no one besides Gore that has as big of a hand in it, you know, even mm-hmm. throughout the 80s. But sorry, Jake, yeah. go ahead. 
No, no. I, I mean, I think that's exactly right, though, right? Like, we can, we can joke that, like, ah, Gore, Gore says he invented the internet. But I, I think this is one of the things, as you're laying out this history and this kind of, like, ideology uh, around, you know, welfare reform and how to tackle poverty and the internet as a core thing. And, you know, you talk about Gore um, describing, you know, the information haves and the information have nots. But you, one of the things that you dug up, I mean, I, I screenshotted it. And, and posted it on Twitter because I just thought it was um it was just it was amazing um was this this article that Gore wrote in the 1991 issue of Scientific American so this is back when he's still Senator Gore right um and it's in you know it's part of this arguing for the the NII what is it the the National Information Infrastructure which is this large bill um you know for 45.6 billion dollars for all this general training and vocation and and things like that right where he says and and you quote from from this article from Gore Gore says quote the unique way in which the US deals with information has been the real key to our success capitalism and representative democracy rely on the freedom of the individual so these opera uh, systems operate in a manner similar to the principles behind massively parallel computers these computers process data, not in one central unit, but rather in tiny, less powerful units. And he goes on to describe essentially how the internet in this vision is synonymous with capitalism. It's, you know, it, it is the, it harkens back to Hayek calling the market the greatest information processor that mankind has ever invented. And, and importantly, Gore goes on to then say that this is, this stands in stark contrast to communism. I think that your book does a really great job right up from the offset of saying like this joke that Gore invented the internet. There's something worth taking seriously there because his fingerprints all are all over turning the internet into something that is synonymous with capitalism and anti-communism. Yeah. And there, I mean, I, I don't get into this as much in this book. Um, although I have an article coming out about it, the, uh, you know, he, in a very real way, he also sold off like the, what he called like the on ramps to the information superhighway that, you know, the, the bills that Gore put forward, uh, were instrumental in making sure that the, what they called network access points, what would later become internet exchange points were managed, uh, not by the NSF, not by the state, but by Sprint MCI, these guys and basically created a landlord class that owns the most important internet infrastructure in the U.S. And it, it went differently elsewhere in, in the world, where you know these exchange points were more often uh, you know run by nonprofits or by the state or academic associations or something like that. But here, landlords. Um, but yeah, I, I do think this idea is worth taking very seriously. And I and I want to be clear that the you know while it, this seems like a, or could seem like a primarily ideological maneuver that they say like, okay, you have this contradiction between punishment and opportunity. It's resolved by the internet, which is supposed to present opportunity for everyone. Therefore, if someone doesn't log on and skill up, that is an active choice. And that person needs to be contained. Like, you know, it's it's an act of um, like economic triage. They need to be kept away lest they pollute the body politic. And that may seem primarily ideological, but we know that, uh, there was an enormously punitive poverty policy throughout the Clinton years that perhaps only could have been carried out by a Democrat when he's new Democrats to, in order to get the coalition together to pass things like, um, as Clinton called it, ending welfare as we know it, um, like the crime bill and stuff like that. 
But it also, you know, if we take seriously that uh, internet policy was also poverty policy, it really changed how they like manage the rest of the internet too. And so I want to be really clear that the like these things that we call digital divides, like, you know, gaps in internet access between cities and rural areas or poor folks and rich folks, white folks and, and native or black folks were, were very real. And it is in part because of because the internet uh, allows economic opportunity everywhere, those who choose not to log on and skill up will be contained by the carceral state in an active economic triage. Um, that also very much affected the way that the internet was built and managed. Because you know, and I want to be very clear that we have some of the slowest, most expensive internet in the developed world. We have these massive gaps between urban rural areas, rich folks and poor folks, uh, uh, black and white folks, white and native folks, strictly because we decided the internet was an opportunity for competition that was best constructed and best delivered through the maximum amount of competition in direct contradiction to how we managed the telephone. You know, we achieved almost universal access with the telephone by eliminating any competition that Bell could had. You know, we, we set up that trade. We said, you guys are going to have your monopoly if you connect everybody. And that was how the telephone got pretty much everywhere. But that goal of universal access was explicitly thrown out in the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And we brought in all these new ways to have cross-industry ownerships so that, you know, we could have satellite companies buying cable companies, buying phone companies, buying internet service providers, which led to in massive market concentration, which means most Americans have one, maybe two choices for where to get their internet from. And this is why, uh, you know, we have so many kids who didn't have internet at home during COVID and they had to get handed out a hotspot or something like that because we, of this way that we've been thinking about the problem has very much changed how we've governed the technology and uh, very different from what is happening in Central Europe, in uh, East Asia, uh, in Scandinavia, places where they do have fairly cheap, fairly fast internet. We live the now for the promise of the infinite. We live the now for the promise of the infinite And we believe in the promise Love, 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 love. Yes, yes, sure, and we don't stop You know, in the first chapter, we, you have a section, you know, speaking specifically about that digital divide. I thought it was interesting to bring it back and point out that the debates about how to manage the internet also became debates about the role that the state should have in the marketplaces. Um, in the opening to that section, the digital divide, um, it says uh, the Clinton administration's discussion of access solutions became a meditation on state limits. The, this final part of access doctrine made distribution of these solutions the responsibility of deregulated markets were in competition with lower prices and extend access. This forced the reconsideration of the universal service mission the provision of baseline connectivity to every citizen in the name of safety and political and economic participation in telecommunications policy, right? And then, and framed as you just talked about in like these set of neoliberal policies where instead of as, you know, universalizing access, making, putting it up to actors, right, that are ostensibly supposed to guarantee access to everybody, but end up just, you know, using the money to subsidize their own operations or inflate their own profit lines or buybacks or whatever, you know, uh, market ent entities usually want to do. And I'm, I'm curious, like, do you think that going forward from then on the, that these uh, ideas about how to manage 
got stuck because everyone in there is just, you know, a neoliberal who believes in the market, whether or not the outcomes are there to justify it, you know, even though people are still having a lack of access to internet, even though people still have pretty poor internet, they just think that if they keep adding on to market solutions that will get there, or is there some other ideological blinder, or maybe even like a, a another structural problem that emerges because of specifically how they uh, try to apply the neoliberal dogma to the internet and solving, you know, the quest, the problem of digital divides. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I think like there is so much of this um, frenzy of new political language and, and new political ideologies at this point, in part because it's a it's a new economic moment in a very serious way. Like the, this was the time in which we really sedimented the fact that we were no longer primarily an industrial com- economy. We were led by finance and services. And, you know, most people were working crappy jobs in food delivery, healthcare, retail, that kind of thing. Um, but for a few very well-paid professionals in tech, finance, producer services, that kind of stuff. And I think this way of managing the internet sticks around both because it really holds that economic moment together politically. It, you know, it allows us to uh, justify that sort of inequality. It allows us to understand why certain people get good jobs and others don't, why certain people are free to move about the country and others are constrained. We really needed the story of the internet as unlimited economic opportunity that is afforded by greater competition. It's uh, became a real important ideological glue. And then there's also just the fact that, you know, there, once these oligopolies get into place, um, you know, very literally in place by like building these cable lines, um, they're hard to dislodge. So I, I think like the, any kind of ideological shift that would disrupt this common sense. And I I think there are a lot of cracks in the armor in 2021 um, needs to at least be supplemented with the force to dislodge these monopolies or oligopolies. Like if Comcast is the only game in town because of this ideology, then Comcast might outlast it. You know, we need both a change in uh, how we think about these problems and a change in how we act on them. Things like trust busting, that kind of stuff. There, there's a there's a bunch of different things I want to touch on, but one that comes to mind as well is you know this idea that it's like you know not only having the the right equipment and the right training, right? Like you bookend the book uh, with this this like flyer that you saw on the streets of Washington D.C. Um, that says the internet, your future depends upon it, right? And the idea behind this this flyer, which is part of this kind of this this larger program of um, up training and all that, is that like it. it this, you know, this specific tool, as you say, is, you know, a symbol of economic progress, right? The promise, you, you say, quote, the promised land you'll reach with the right equipment and the right training. So it puts all this like individual onus on, on, on poor people, right? It's like, the reason you're poor is that you you don't have the right equipment, right? You don't have a Acer Chromebook. You don't have the right training. You haven't learned how to code. Um, you don't have the right like culture, right? You haven't learned how to uh, send professional emails um, or type at a certain rate or, yeah, or your whatever. Words per minute are too low, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your words per minute are too low, and that corresponds, as we all know, directly to your wage. Um, the faster you type, the more money you make. Uh, and, <laughs> 
<laughs> you can actually mine Bitcoin on those websites where you type yep. really fast and it, then the car moves faster and faster. <laughs> yeah. speaking and is rolling in it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you book in the, the book with that, like the internet, your future depends upon it. There's also like a different story here as well, right? This is a story of punishment, right? Like it's your fault. You're punished if you don't do this. At the same time, goes to that that you know that other element to it too is like it's not only having the right equipment and the right training, but being in the right place. You need to be like ultimately mobile, right? This is a myth that economists like Larry Summers and these people are constantly harping on: is that like you, the reason you're poor is you haven't moved to where the job yeah. are. Um, that that's that's the reason why. But at the same time, we see the state providing. Uh, you know, punishing these people while also providing all kinds of rewards and incentives for people who have already achieved that. I'm thinking in particular of, um, I, I heard on a recent episode of the Trillbillies, right? Which is a, a fantastic, uh, podcast, um, looking at the kind of political economy of Appalachia. Um, but they were talking about, that West Virginia has just started this incentive program to attract professionals to move to the state. And so the West Virginia is, is saying, we'll give you $10,000 for the first year that you live in West Virginia and then an additional $2,000 for the second year that you move here, right? But as, as the Chillbillies pointed out, right, this is obviously targeted to people likely from the DC metro area, uh, who already have high paying jobs, who can work from home. Um, the state's marketing materials explicitly point out that the cost of living is substantially lower in West Virginia. So your hard earned dollars will stretch further, right? You can exchange your suburban townhouse in DuPont Circle for a mansion in the, in the mount, in the Appalachian Mountains, right? But that incentive is also, is not going to be given to people who don't already have those high paying, high power. Right. The locals, the locals need to be replaced. And, and this is, yeah. you know, in part why this, um, why technology poverty policy is always poverty policy, because it, you know, the interesting thing about those posters was like all of the programs offered, um, for all these various like certifications and stuff like that had nothing to do with the internet. There was no internet involved. You could, uh, they were like skills and like training for Microsoft word, uh, you know, stuff like that. And so the internet really just became a symbol of what was going to change in you rather than like a concrete technology. And the, the West Virginia move is another great example because it's, it's pretty obvious that's not going to create any jobs. It is just going to move people and yes, yeah, some of their tax dollars into West Virginia, but none of that money is going towards, like you're saying, Jathan, like, uh, providing opportunities for people who are already there. The idea is that you need to replace them with outsiders, usually white folks, usually highly skilled, um, who are not going to create a ton of new jobs for the people who are already there, but are going to come bring something else in. So in cities especially, this becomes a way to talk about uh, gentrification in really positive terms as kind of like adding productive capacity to the rest of the city just by importing wealthy white folks. Um, so in part, one of my goals for the book was to show how the rest of the city is forced to change in order to support that project. You know, like if something is changing in terms of importing all these new techies, if, if Richard Florida is getting to see his dreams happen, then what happens to everybody else? You know, what happens in the schools? What happens in the libraries? What happens to, you know, people who are just waiting for the bus as, you know, these new wealthier white folks are moving into the city? 
I mean, I feel like all that's going to do is bring a bunch of unwanted Starbucks and other franchises to a lot of these smaller towns, thus introducing more lower paying jobs and then pushing out all the mom and pop places because, you know, all the uh, imports are going to prefer a brand that they recognize instead of Meemaw and Papa's pepperoni rolls. Everybody's going to want to go to, you know, the vegan baker or the Starbucks. And it, and it creates this like, I mean, it, it, it brews class war in those places too. And this is something that <laughs> yeah. like the Trillbillies talk a lot about as well, right? That, you know, exactly that, right? Like, like they, they have talked about, in, in, you know, in these small Appalachian towns that somebody, you know, somebody comes in and starts up. Yeah. Like a, a really fancy artisanal, uh, cafe and bakery. And then they, you know, they get their way onto the local city councils, like, chamber of commerce or something like that. And they start, you know, and, and they start doing, yeah, agitating for changing the place. You know, the culture mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. place is toxic. It doesn't have the right people here. And so I, I think that that is a really important thing. I'd love to hear you speak more on it, Dan, that, that link between the, the kind of gentrification, right? Which we're often told is this kind of story of real estate, um, which it is. It very much is a story of, of real estate. But I, I think as you have shown, there is also very much a story here of skills and technology as also a gentrifying force. Yeah. So in the, the book opens with this, um, you know, big historical story about how the political economy of the U.S. and our uh, poverty policy, especially kind of our like labor market policy, what to do with people as they gain or lose jobs, um, how that has changed over the last 40 years. But, you know, my primary kind of operating principle going in was that people are smart or at least they're not stupid. And, you know, it's, it's not, we're not just going to absorb these lessons from on high about how the world works. We need to be incentivized to follow these rules. We need to get taught them. We need to practice them. So the, the rest of the book is, is largely ethnographic and it's me spending a couple of years in different places in DC that try to solve poverty with technology. And it was really important for me to look at this from multiple sides, from helper and helped at, at a bunch of different scales as the, as the city changed, the institutions changed in it. So the, the first stop in DC is on, you know, the so-called right side of the digital divide where I spend a while in the startup community um, in mostly in one firm that I call in crowd. Um, but, you know, throughout these like, you know, big industry events, they have like tech demos, like local versions of shark tank, all the networking and parties, that kind of stuff. Yeah. These incubators being called 1776, which just yeah. like so on the nose. <laughs> full of um, full of Obama alums. Uh, very important, given an enormous amount of money by the city uh, to operate. But yeah, 1776 was a big deal. It was a real big hub for the city, and now has franchises across the across the country. So you know, like a lot of cities, DC saw a real flood of of tech workers post 2008, uh, and in part because the city itself saw that as a way to get out of the recession and for DC specifically to kind of pivot away from the federal government, which was always a good source of jobs. Like that's why we have a black middle class here. that is much larger, uh, than the rest of the country, but which was shrinking over time because it was being cut apart by the neoliberals. Uh, 
So they looked for something else and tech was the answer. And and tech is the answer in lots of different places for similar reasons. It'll be a little different in rural areas from cities, but there is this sense that, you know, you can bring in techies and start a new class there in a way that is maybe easier from bringing in, uh, you know, new manufacturing base or something like that for the simple reason that like, you know, if you're mostly building apps, you don't require a ton of fixed capital. Um, you don't need a lot of new construction. I mean, this is the argument that the, <laughs> that West Virginia policy is making is that you really can just do your job here. You don't need to move that much of it else. You know, there's probably a, you know, there's a server farm on somewhere else in the country. Sure. But, you know, you just need your laptop. And, you know, this is in, in part how uh, it manages to put a really positive sheen on gentrification because, you know, what someone like Richard Florida does is that you imagine all of the uh, construction displacement that you associate with gentrification, the creation of new high cost housing that uh, displaces lower cost affordable housing, you know, uh, new chain retail that pushes out older chains, stuff like that. That all becomes uh, productive investments, new businesses, just like a new manufacturing base because the techies just need somewhere to live and to work. Um, and so this, what we would normally assume to be this like violent, if boring process of real estate redevelopment becomes this, you know, really exciting creative city project where you can bring in new kinds of people to change the rest of the city. And then of course, these folks then get, start getting involved in politics. Um, they start sitting on local boards and the rest of the city slowly starts to change around them. One of the things I love about your book is that you are in a, in a lot of ways kind of a Busting myths, right? And but in particular, busting myths by paying by paying close attention to these like slogans that have become a form of like accepted truth or common sense, and then showing how you know well, problematic they are, how much more complex they are, but uh, but also just how wrong they are as well. Uh, uh, one that you don't mention explicitly in the book, but I think is very much um, there beneath the surface, is another one of the you know digital native versus digital nomad, (laughs) (laughs) which is another one of these kind of bullshit, like digital divide um, kind of terms that, you know, and this is meant to be, you know, more uh, generational, right? You you, you somehow, if you're a millennial or uh, a Zoomer, you are born part of the internet. You, you are birthed cybernetically from the womb of the, of the online. And, and, and therefore, you know it. No, also, this is like a narrative that, got i think supercharged during the pandemic right you started to see narratives in the early and medium points of lockdowns trying to dive into how work from home was affecting digital natives or digital nomads especially those who then in real life became nomads and took this as a chance to just live anywhere that they could in the country right yeah absolutely right and that perpetuates as well this divide uh, that is not only generational, but very class and racial mm-hmm. and gendered mm-hmm. as well. Like, you know, you talk about how, you know, the, the things like the Internet, your future depends on it, right? This kind of like training and, and, and all of that. It marks some members of these generations um, as people who are actually digitally illiterate, right? That they, they, they aren't part of their generation of digital nomads. They're somehow outside of it. Um, they're, you know, they're marginalized, but not in, in any, any kind of class-based way, but rather just in their familiarity with the technologies. But that's completely wrong. Let's get into some of the ethnography work that, that is really the bulk of the book. And in particular, I'm thinking of, um, a really great 
section that you have uh, in the intro of the book where you're talking to yeah, one of your one of the people you've you interviewed and kind of followed her life, uh, Mia, who um, when you were talking to her, you know, was uh, currently a homeless uh, woman and relied a lot on the library system in D.C. Um, as a place of access, but also just as a place like a, a kind of third place, right? A place to live during the day when you couldn't go to the shelters, right? When you couldn't go elsewhere. And you quote Mia saying, I've always been a big library person. And here she's echoing another person, you, uh, another one of your um, uh, informants, uh, Sean, who said, you know, he's always been a computer man, right? But uh, as you go on to say, quote, digitally literate, but still suffering from the high cost and daily stress of a gentrifying city, Mia's life didn't fit the access doctrine, or as we will see, the vision of the library remade to support the access doctrine. Could you talk a little bit about this? Because just for the, for listeners, you have a, you have three kind of chapters in the body of the book one each one focusing on your ethnographic work and the startup community as you mentioned um in the library system in dc and then in a uh, in a charter school uh, in the dc area as well and how these ideas of the access doctor and how these ideas of learning to code and the digital divide and and so on and so forth have remade these institutions um, due to, in large part, like policy, um, forcing these institutions to change their, their mission in some way and who they serve, right? From, as you put it in the book, right? This, this shift from like patrons of the library to customers of the library. Yeah, that was a remarkable thing as I was really not expecting so many of the librarians that I talked to to refer to their patrons as customers. Um, and it was, and it was pretty clear that anyone who was trained in the last 10 years or so, um, the, the research, the book is primarily from 2012 to 2015. So anyone trained, um, from the early two thousands on had that kind of tick and it was, that really took me away. Um, and, and I think it says a lot, um, but they're, you know, they still really wanted to help. I mean, these are, these are people that took, you know, a particularly well-paying, very stressful job, um, in order to do some kind of public service, but as they did their jobs and as the library changed around them, they ended up really increasingly pushing out the people that they were meant to serve. And then they did it through this language of upskilling and technology provision. So, you know, one of, one of the goals for the book was not just to say, uh, you know, this uh, particular view is wrong. This is not how we do things. The truth is more complicated. It's not a binary. It's a spectrum, whatever. You know, I mean, that's, that's important work. But, you know, I, I really wanted to explain and, and provide a mechanism for, okay, so it's wrong. Why do we keep doing it then? You know, if, we, if we're all convinced that the truth is more complicated than that, great. What makes this stick around? What gives it this political weight that seems to show up everywhere is just common sense. So to do that, I kind of moved to the institutional level, uh, ever, ever the sociologists, and say like, okay, you know, these, we don't just learn how to be economic actors, or we don't just wake up knowing like, this is, you know, how to get a good job. These are the skills you need. These are things that we're taught. And these are things that were incentivized to, uh, to pick up by engaging in what Marxist feminists call social reproduction, you know, the, the places that make people. Uh, and some of that work happens uh, for no wages in the home. Some of it happens for low wages justified on the basis that it's women doing it uh, in schools, libraries, clinics, hospitals, places like these. 
places that take care of people. So, you know, once I showed the kind of like ideal type organization and ideal type person by exploring these uh, startups and the new mostly white professionals they brought into DC, I wanted to see how the rest of the city reacted to them, especially in these sites of social reproduction. And what happened was that, you know, these schools and libraries are under an enormous amount of pressure lately. The rest of the welfare uh, welfare state has been shrunk down, turned real punitive, uh, there are enormous number of things that we require of schools and libraries that they are frankly not trained to do. You know, your teacher or librarian also has to be a nurse, social worker, jobs counselor, uh, genius bar. Like, you know, there's a million things that they got to do. Mm-hmm. And the budgets show that too. You know, I mean, in uh, the early 2000s, like DC had uh, fewer librarians at more libraries than it did in 1975. Like it was, it was an enormous crunch. And there was a lot of talk, especially in the libraries, of, of really uh, shutting down a bunch of branches in the early 2000s. The schools went through a similar movement where we were really uh, the ground zero for the charter school movement in terms of shutting down struggling public schools, firing teachers, and replacing both of them with uh, privately managed alternatives in charters and charter employees. So these institutions are under a lot of pressure. Their budgets are being cut. Uh, There's a struggle for political legitimacy. People are saying, why do we need public schools anymore? Do you need a library if you have Wikipedia? You know, things that we laugh at, but which politicians can take seriously. Uh, And they have more to do than they can handle. So to solve all those problems, they turned to the story of the access doctrine, the story that solving poverty with technology is something that, that we can do. And they may not believe it in their heart of hearts, but it's the story that gets them financial support from the state, from donors like the Gates Foundation. Um, it wins them political support. You know, the library desperately needed a renovation. The school uh, that I called Du Bois that I hang out with uh, desperately needed to uh, appease its uh, governing board as it graduated its first class of seniors. Like it really needed to convince them that it knew what to do with these kids. And it makes their jobs a heck of a lot easier. You know, and the librarians really struggled uh, to figure out, you know, for example, like whether someone who was watching porn in the library or who was sleeping in the library should stay. And they had that problem a lot because the library is really the last public space in the city. I mean, the only place you can really hang out all day without buying anything. Um, And because homeless shelters kick folks out during the day, downtown at the MLK Central Branch was functionally the largest homeless shelter in the city uh, during the day. And that dynamic was repeated to a greater or lesser degree in the smaller branches that were sprinkled throughout the city. So they kept having these challenges and they might want to reach out to someone. They might want to help. They might want to say, well, you know, he doesn't have a place to watch porn at home. He can do it here. Or like, you know, I know Mia, she, her medication makes her quite sleepy. Uh, If she takes a nap, that's fine. But there's a lot of other people that want to sit there and they have this internal conflict and the strain on their resources as they say, okay, They're not using these resources to train up, look for jobs, log on, get new skills. You're out of here. And they might feel bad about it, but it's the thing that keeps the institution together and it's the thing that makes their job easier. So for people like Mia and Sean, it's really just an extraordinarily generous um, crew of, uh, I think they were late teens, early 20s when I started hanging out with them in 2012 and they're mid-20s, early 30s now were a group of homeless uh, black folks 
who were moving from library to library, really good friends, about six or seven folks uh, who were kicked out of libraries in succession because they had been sleeping or sharing food or something like that. They finally found their way to the central branch of the library and made, you know, a nice place for themselves there, made something of a home. And there were many beautiful things about the library. The library does lots of wonderful things for many, many people from healthcare signups to dance partners to uh, providing an amazing archive of DC punk history. Like the library is a wonderful place big fan of libraries, but the library was desperate and it knew that its future politically and financially lay with courting more of the kind of startup class and of making sure that its mission was explicitly about skills training. And as they did so over and over, uh, slowly over time, there was less and less space for people like Mia who just wanted to chill and just needed a place to rest because there was really no other space for it in the city. So in this kind of perverse way, these organizations, because they are keep, you know, being forced to change and forced to follow this like really strict mission of outreach and upgrading, they marginalize the very people that they're meant to serve. They say they're here to help folks like me and Sean, but if they're not going to accept the help because that doesn't fit their goals, you know, and they realistically see no place for them in the labor market, they're realistically more concerned about uh, getting housing. If they're not going to accept the help, then they're going to be kicked out. And that dynamic happened in the library just as much as in the school. Um, and it was, you know, something people maybe felt guilty over, but it was the thing that ultimately kept the institution alive. So it's what they stuck with. It's what they taught. And ultimately, that's how the rest of us start to absorb these ideas, because the places that teach us the rules of the economic game are themselves convinced that we got to teach people to code or else that's it for us. You know, one of the things that really struck me while reading your ethnography of the of the library and and of the people there, uh, you know, is this this sense of the the kind of paternalism of libraries and librarians, but but in 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 both senses of the word paternalism, right? In one sense of this kind of overbearing, ever watching, paternalistic authority, right? That is, you know, very much kind of policing the behaviors and activities of the the quote-unquote customers in the library right whether it's in the you know it's in the computer lab or in the spaces of the library right um, but also in the other sense of um, the librarians themselves being these kinds of caring yet frustrated parental figures um, for the people there and and I, I think that that kind of paternalism in both senses causes a lot of conflict between uh, the caretakers of the library and the, the consumers and customers of the library. And it's, it's something that's like built into the role, you know, it's uh, there are, you know, many more radical ways of doing librarianship or doing education, but you know, you are deployed and I am deployed at a university as someone who's supposed to say, you know, this, this worked out for me. You know, I, I went to school, I got a good set of skills. I got a well-paying job. 
it'll work for you too. And, you know, I am supposed to, you know, bring people up to the same level that I am and impart on what's in my head. And we all know that's not how it actually works, but it's, you know, it is the story that these institutions need to tell themselves. And I'll, and I'll say that that paternalism is, if anything, more present in education just for, you know, the reason that they're dealing with minors and they act in loco parentis. Um, so the kind of like, uh, fine-grained data tracking of students, this really like um, data-driven discipline that ended up being quite punitive in the name of this, uh, of reaching the test scores that the school had to reach were things that like the library could only dream of. They're not going to track people the same way. Although the library, of course, also has a special police unit that goes around and patrols um, to see, you know, who is sleeping, who is up, who might be doing like unlicensed entrepreneurship and, you know, selling drugs or something like that. Um, so there, the threat of punishment supports the promise in, in different ways in different institutions, but it's all very much dedicated to getting both the helpers and the help to stick to the script. I think also in that chapter, you talk a bit about, you know, in this chapter about transformational libraries, there's like that overarching question about what the library is for. Do you think that there, within the system that we have, exist enough of uh, political actors or people to cobble together a coalition that can insist that the library is supposed to serve for, you know, reinforcing the universal ser- service you know, ideals that have been eroded by these specific projects that you, you highlight in the charter schools, in the startup communities, and in the library themselves? Or is it more that, you know, these other forces are just so dominating have, of the access doctrine of the idea of training centers or libraries that they've just dominated the discourse and the realities so much. I, I think there are like enormous structural problems, like the, the austerity that makes uh, schools and libraries and I'd say other social reproductive institutions so vulnerable to ideas like this, like that is really baked into us federalism in a very serious way where, you know, libraries are, have an enormous amount of the revenue provided by local property taxes Uh, for schools. It's a mix of that and state revenue. And those are the things that take the biggest hit when recessions happen and when more people come to rely on those institutions. So it was precisely at the moment when they're providing the greatest services that they themselves feel their bottom line the most, and which makes them more vulnerable to the whims of donors, whatever, you know, used car salesman runs the state house, you know, whatever, uh, class is being offered at their, uh, their training institution, you know, they, they are desperate for something that's going to work when they're more needed than ever. So there, you know, there's big structural problems like that, but politically I, you know, I, I am honestly like more hopeful than I've been for like the vast majority of my life, because I think there is more organizing at, uh, in this sector in the helping professions in socially reproductive work than there has been in a, in a very long time. And it's a different kind of organizing than you would get in other places because this sort of, uh, some people call social justice unionism or community unionism uh, organizes not just the workers who are fighting austerity and fighting for autonomy on their jobs. You know, I mean, that's the other thing about the this rapid series of changes that these institutions are forced into is that it really makes the work of librarianship or teaching suck. 
Like their librarians have to take up four or five extra jobs. They're um, forced into doing like kind of policing work that they did not sign up for. Teachers have to, are, you know, obviously working on the weekends, staying way after school, doing all this data management they didn't necessarily believe in, doing this like coaching for standardized tests they didn't sign up for. There's all this competition baked in that totally degrades their work. So they're fighting against that. But they are also at the same time all across the country fighting for the people that they serve, uh, fighting for library patrons, fighting for students, their neighborhoods. And that kind of organizing that brings together the workplace and the people it serves is, is seen an upsurge across the country. There is a history of it, you know, and when public sector unions were first legalized in the U.S., there was a wave of library strikes. Um, I have this awesome picture that I, I think I paraphrase in the book of these striking um, Contra Costa librarians uh, who are look like they're wearing librarian costumes, but you know they're not. And they're very like straight-faced, middle-aged women with big boxy glasses in like, the late 60s, um, sitting very sternly with uh, their sashes that say on strike. And they one of them has a picket sign that says, I serve people, not institutions. That action has, has slowed down to an extent in U.S. libraries, although it is picking up. There was a big campaign in New Orleans um, to get financial support for the libraries that library workers ran with uh, DSA down there. Uh, Canadian libraries have actually seen a pretty significant strike wave in the last decade. Um, but in schools, there is a massive organizing wave that kind of peaked in 2018 with Red for Red, uh, largely inspired by the Chicago Teachers Union and the, the core caucus that took over there in 2012. But, but throughout these places, they're saying, like, we're organizing for autonomy in our jobs. We're protecting our institutions, making demands of the state who are, at the end of the day, our employer. And we're doing so by organizing alongside the people we serve. And this is a very different way of conceiving of that relationship uh, between helper and helped than the access doctrine suggests. You know, instead of saying that I, you know, the person who went to school and got the good job is going to, uh, you know, transform you into me, something that we all know is a myth. You know, like uh, in my slice of the census, like the most common experience is not having gone to college and gotten a good job. The most common experience is not having finished college, is having started and dropped out. So we know that, you know, people like me are not representative. We know that this doesn't work, but we haven't had a lot of other ideas. But I, I do think that this kind of socially reproductive organizing where people are striking with the support of parents, teachers, library patrons, you know, bus passengers, however it works in your city, that is starting to rewrite the script. And, and I, I feel more hopeful about regaining a, a public vision for our schools and libraries and seeing them as public resources that can serve everybody. Uh, I feel more hopeful of that now, honestly, than I was when the book started. You know, like if you told me that you, that we would see, uh, Teachers strikes in West Virginia because they made them all wear Fitbits uh, in order to qualify for their insurance plan. Uh, I would have said you were crazy, but we saw it. <laughs> we saw it in Oklahoma. We saw it in Arizona. We saw it all over the country, not just in Chicago and L.A., but everywhere. Um, so I, I think that work is there. It's hard. Uh, it didn't happen in D.C. There was um, while we have a, a, you know, a pretty progressive teachers union, the charter sector takes up about half the city and is entirely ununionized. There was a one pretty major victory. And then, you know, mysteriously, they shut down that school and the libraries have come together during covid. I think the 
crisis has really forced librarians to um, be more creative and to reach out their constituents. But during the time when I was there, um, they closed MLK library for its much overdue renovation and really just left uh, patrons out to dry. You know, there's uh, 100, 200 people who were there every day when their shelters had kicked them out. And they were now directed to a day shelter that was on the far edge of the city in like an industrial park where they put like, you know, all the dumps mechanics and strip clubs they didn't want around the rest of the city. And that's where they sent all the homeless folks that had gone downtown where the restaurants were, where the public spaces were, and mostly where the library was. And there were some protests from patrons and librarians as that was happening, but it was clear that there wasn't enough of a bond between folks because of that distrust that had built over time through that paternalism. You know, if you spend enough time kicking people out for sleeping or, you know, telling them that they shouldn't be playing games, shouldn't be watching porn, then that relationship is not going to be there when you need to come together to, to make things happen. So there was a, you know, a pretty, a small, but, you know, sad protest on the day that the library shut down and the energy wasn't there. I, I think the energy could be there in the future. It is elsewhere in the country, um, but that is exactly what we need if these are going to be public spaces for people rather than skill centers that don't work. You know, they, they string the institution along for a while, but they're not helping anybody. Quite a few friends that are actually public librarians. Uh, it was kind of a big joke at my wedding. I was going around introducing all of my librarian friends to my other librarian friends. And this um, is in New Orleans, I, by the way. And this oh, was in awesome. New Orleans, by the way. So yeah, I'm really familiar with uh, everything that the, the New Orleans public library system went through. Um, my wife was a uh, was a educator in the one of the many charter school foundations in new orleans before we moved so we you know we firsthand experience with how all that all that bullshit works because they're not just librarians but they're also social workers you know and that's that's what we've devolved you know i mean i i can't really say anything because when i was younger you know jathan and i our, our mom worked and i spent a lot of the day by myself and we had a library near our house and i basically would just camp out at the library all day while my mom was at work. And, you know, the librarians there didn't realize, but they were kind of basically my babysitters. <laughs> I just kind of see that like the librarian as a social worker motif is probably what seems like a lot of the librarians that you were referring to earlier, uh, people looking out for someone else. And then you've got like the no nonsense, you know, these are the rules. Don't break the rules type people that have to encounter that kind of, you know, get their good time ruined. It's a, it's a role that's changed a lot over time. And, you know, because of federalism, which sucks, it'll be different in different places. Uh, you know, I work at a library school and I, or an information school, but we used to be a library school and I love it in part because I get to meet these folks who are information workers and social workers and, and to, um, see how they're dealing with these problems every day. And it's, and it's amazing. It's an incredible job. And, you know, partly as a side note, one of my goals here was to get the rest of social science and, and radical politics to take libraries seriously as a place where the action is. Like, it's, it's just remarkable that we don't spend as much money uh, talking about libraries, don't spill as much ink. We don't have librarians as organizers um, to, you know, talk at our events or whatever in the same way we do like teachers or nurses, you know, obviously very important professions in many ways, there's you know more of them than librarians, but Libraries are where it's at, and there's an incredible resource there. Part of what's happened over time is that whether that change is coming from the employers or the employees, 
is there's one of the things that I had seen in, especially at MLK in the central branch of, of DC's libraries, which was, you know, desperately overdue for renovation and really trying to, sh- you know, showcase itself as what could be the library of the future, you know, was desperate to prove that it deserved to survive. What they ended up doing was hiring a lot of younger white workers to come in and replace black veterans who were bought out. And they arrived at the same time as the, uh, as the maker spaces, the fabrication spaces, as the startup spaces hit. And, you know, they didn't really, the idea was that you couldn't operate these spaces. You couldn't have a different kind of library without having a different kind of librarian. In part, that's also a product of the changing way the librarians are trained. Um, so in the big state schools, especially, uh, what used to be library schools are now information schools and they don't just train librarians. They also train, you know, database engineers, human computer interaction designers, all these folks. Um, so the vast majority of my colleagues are not librarian focused, um, or have any kind of libraries training whatsoever. And that means that when the librarians are getting trained, they're also taking classes with, people who are in startups or want to have a startup, people who are engineers, people who are, um, you know, aspiring tech execs, that kind of thing. And that, you know, definitely filters into the way that they approach the role. So they absolutely are going to fill um, all of these duties on the ground. And, and I think the closer you are to day-to-day service, the, the more likely you see are to see how nuanced the problem is and how many demands people have. Um, but the institutions that are making these people are telling a different kind of story about how poverty works and what you do about it. Um, I, I just I, I was curious also because, you know, as we've talked about how austerity and neoliberal projects force people in the institutions that they're stripping down to assume more roles than they should. Right. But if we also are to reinvest and expand in libraries as public spaces, do you think it then in that sort of situation where we're prioritizing them and building them up, it makes sense to have librarians occupy some of the roles that the state and the market have forced onto them because it doesn't want to fund them elsewhere. Like, would it make sense for librarians to be social workers? Would it make sense for to have social workers in libraries or have libraries in, in a massively expanded sort of way? Because I think also like you're saying, you know, it is surprising that they're not, you know, when I really think about it, that they're not involved in, you know, these sort of struggles that we all have because libraries are a key part of a lot of people's lives. We all talk about libraries also as an example of like a public institution that wouldn't get recreated today, you know, if like as a, as, as that, you know, joke or riff on like neoliberals wouldn't fund the library today, right? Because, uh, it, you know, it's premised on like a, a level of solidarity and community they're uncomfortable with, right? I'm curious, like, what do you think on that, on that front? Or do you think that there are prospects for doing that in a way that doesn't feel tainted by uh, neoliberalism? And I'll also note that, uh, you know, just before the revolution in 1913, there's a a wonderful short uh, essay by Lenin called What Can Be Done for Public Education that is just a love letter to the New York Public Library. Uh, And, you know, he went there and he spent time there. He read the report and he's just gaga over, you know, they're giving out 900,000 books. They were visited by a million and a half people. We don't let anybody into our libraries. This is an incredible thing. It's it's this remarkable little essay. 
And, um, and I also know we, I mean, we wouldn't have Marx without the, the London library exactly. either. Exactly. And, uh, and, and that is within the neoliberal sphere. Holy shit. Marx and Lenin love the library. Uh, uh, can't, can't be no, I mean, that. Like, I mean, that joke is real that like when we say that, like, you know, if we tried to invent libraries today, no one would allow it. You know, if you, if you, if you just, if they didn't exist and you told somebody like, all right, we're going to make a place that's totally free for anybody to come, we'll give them a card and you can take out anything you want. You spend as much time there as you like. Uh, there are a million other classes and things that you can do all for free. Uh, there, you're going to be trained by uh, people who have advanced degrees and, you know, you find whichever one of them you need and they'll help you out too. You can lend some of the technology out and all this stuff, you know, it, non-starter would never happen. And, and I, and there's something really beautiful there that I, I think we do need to do. We need to preserve. Um, there are a lot of experiments Ed, to your question, um, throughout the country, throughout the world, uh, with different models of service for libraries. And I, you know, it's, it is a bit of a chicken and egg problem about whether you solve these like structure down, top down structural pressures or whether you change the service model first. Um, you know, I know that in, in DC, at the central branch, um, they made a big hullabaloo out of hiring a uh, social worker in, I want to say, 2014. Um, none of the librarians I spoke to ever saw her on the ground. My impression is that changed after 2015 when I, when I left the library. But uh, what I was told, what I saw was that she was primarily there in part to appease the condo across the street um, who kept writing letters and calling the police and complaining um, that homeless folks were standing outside. Uh, and they, you know, invited people to meetings and asked the librarian to come to meetings like, okay, what are we allowed to call the police for? What are we not allowed to call the police for? What, you know, this is in like a, basically like the central business district for DC and um, right near where the wizards play. And so that, that was their role there, but elsewhere it's, you know, it's something different. I, there's really wonderful exper- um, experiments in Seattle, um, in Honolulu, in San Francisco of employing, um, dedicated social workers at the library and making it more of a services hub, you know, on the, on the basis that, you know, that's where the people already are. So let's just bring all the stuff to them. And, you know, in DC, there was definitely some of that already. Like there was, you know, video visitation for jail. There was like uh, healthcare signups, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, there's, there's ways to take that even further and make it, uh, you know, the first stop for all sorts of city resources. Whether that's what librarians should be doing, you know, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to say that librarians should be librarians and that the rest of the city can uh, be the rest of the city, given that there's enough funding. Um, I think that totally redesigning what librarians do uh, is probably more difficult than just having more of the people that already do that stuff. You know, the people who are already nurses, social workers, translators, um, that kind of thing. Uh, but there are a lot of models all over the place. Um, and I, and they all take advantage of the fact that this is already where the people are. And it's already a hub of social services, even if it's not working that great. I mean, I know we're, we're, we're starting to run up on time and there's so much more to talk about. I do want to, I want to get to, to two things. So the first thing is, uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned in the book a few times you, and you draw from, um, the political theorist Nancy Frazier's idea of the crisis of care, right? Which is a, a, a an excellent idea. And, 
you mentioned in the in the in the book and in, in the conclusion of the book actually where you say quote at a structural level capital requires socially reproductive labor to maintain its own circulation capital cannot make people but its need for more and different labor power is balanced by an impulse to disinvest from the cost of social reproduction and disrupt or abandon the spaces of solidarity and community that are grown therein so it's a crisis of care but it is also a kind of in, an inherent internal contradiction to capital as well, right? And I think one of the things that you've you've been tracing through this story of but technology technology policy, poverty policy, institutional, you know, public services policy um, is the way in which that contradiction is manifesting. And you know, I'm just thinking as well, you know, the the days of yore, right? Like I'm thinking of my my own dad's uh, you know career. Where he finished high school, you know, and this isn't, this is in the Mississippi Gulf Coast, right? He finished high school and then he went on, um, to work at the shipyard where my grandpa worked at that shipyard. And, and, but as part of working at that shipyard, right? The shipyard had an apprentice program and a trade school. And so it taught him how, you know, fresh out of high school, 18, the only job he's ever had and the only job he ever had his entire life. He got a job at 18 at the shipyard learned a trade and then was employed by the shipyard for, you know, 40 years in that trade and, and made a very, you know, what the Republicans would see as the like ideal, right? Like, you know, middle-class job, electrician at a shipyard, right? But like that, that dream is no longer possible, like anywhere, right? Like no, nowhere is no, no industry is employing, is having its own trade school and apprentice programs like that, taking people fresh out of the local high school and giving them skills, right? All of this has been put onto, as you've been laying out, these other institutions like libraries. We haven't even really dived into the charter school that you did an ethnography of, but right, like that, all of that pressure is being put on the, the libraries and the, the schools, the librarians and the teachers and the principals at these schools, right? To, um, provide these services to provide these skills and training while also being given no resources, like no, you know, community legitimacy to do that, right? Maybe you could speak a little bit more about that crisis of care and, and perhaps tie it into some, uh, a concept that you really get into later in the book um, of bootstrapping, right? This kind of bootstrapping for these institutions. Yeah, the... Um that model doesn't exist anymore, but what you're saying or what your dad went through. And, you know, while it's, it's a hard thing to measure because businesses don't want to tell you, but the, the best data that we have is that like the t- amount of time that firms spend on training their employees has just plummeted since the 1980s. And so in part, what you see with this, uh, training push with when people talk about a skills gap that needs to be solved by our universities, when we say that our schools need to all be teaching people to code, is the idea that uh, every worker needs to be pre-trained for the jobs that they don't even have yet, because the firm is certainly not going to train you. They expect you to start right away. So everything that used to be an internal process of the firm is instead sloughed off to the state. And the state says that, you know, we are going to subsidize you by offering all of these uh, training programs that uh, do what you should be doing, because aren't you the guys that know your own business the best in the first place? So, 
you know, what, I, what I'm trying to do here is show that, you know, as we get this change in the mode of production that is complemented by a change in the mode of social reproduction. You know, if we're going to have different kinds of jobs, different ways of profit making, then we need to make different kinds of people. And the institutions that do that are going to change. You know, a school or a library is going to look a lot different than it looked 40, 50, 60 years ago. That change is enforced by these structural conditions about austerity, political illegitimacy, and stuff like that. And they create this urge in these institutions to try to solve this very urgent problem, to make sure the people who are outside the labor market are able to get back in and re-enter. Because no one's really outside the labor market anymore. You're just constantly training up and upskilling. And the institutions that are in charge of that have this very serious task to make sure that people are included in the economy. But we know like, that that's just not how things work, that there's always going to be some kinds of failure because there's only so much that a school or a library can do. You know, We know that we can like predict kids' SAT scores if we know their zip code. So there's only so much that the school can add on top of that if there are all these structural pressures elsewhere. So this experimentation to have new kinds of technologies, new kinds of teachers, new buildings, new curriculum, new degrees, new charter schools, new libraries that look like Apple stores, like this constant process of experimentation is, is painful for the institution, but they're happy to go through it because that's the thing that's going to keep them alive. That's what I call bootstrapping. It's this idea of the institution itself, uh, in order to keep itself alive, in order to serve the people it has to serve, has to constantly change, constantly renovate itself, uh, modeled very much on startups as the kind of ideal organization that are presented to everybody else as the model to which that we should aspire. So it's not just that individuals need to be entrepreneurs, but our institutions, our public sector institutions, need to learn to be more entrepreneurial like startups. And this is a, a fairly common sense thing for any kind of like administrator or low-level politician or whatever. You, you, it'll be not controversial to say like, okay, should we have more nimble institutions that are able to pivot their goals very suddenly? But yes, absolutely. They should obviously take lessons from startups. But at the end of the day, you know, a, a, a library or a school just can't pivot. The startup that I talked about in the beginning of the book uh, changed its identity very rapidly and found an enormous success by moving from a uh, business to customer to business to business model. And there, and it's not, um, you know, it wasn't a, uh, you know, they made a lot of money. It wasn't a totally revolutionary idea. They made very good catering software, as I tell it in the book. Um, and they got in very good with, you know, large enterprises that required those services. But it completely changed what they were going to do. And that, that change, that kind of pivot is essential to what startups are. Um, internally and in their role in the larger economy. They can just change very suddenly. That sense of constant change was really important for the people who worked there. It's part of what they loved about it, that they had to do you know, 10 different jobs over the course of a day. Um, it was something that was obviously very important to the city, that they courted these places because they thought they could offer some kind of change that was different from the existing job base. But it's not like a school can suddenly say like, all right, well, I'm a middle school, but next quarter I'm going to be a high school. You know, we're going to pivot from a, a six through eight model to a nine through 12 model. And that'll be the market that we serve now on. Um, you know, libraries can't suddenly say like, well, you know, 
we're uh, not all of these books were taken out this quarter. So we're going to move to entirely like a, you know, a, a blog and some movie screenings next quarter. We'll figure out what to do with the books later. You know, like the, the collections are going to stick around in large part because these places are public institutions and they still have the civic and technical and political infrastructure of an earlier era when they were, you know, public services that were offered to everybody. In an ideal world, you know, we know that these places were riven with segregation, that they were underfunded, and there were all sorts of things that were wrong, but they reached toward this ideal. And there's a new ideal today. These, these folks are uh, forced to bootstrap to look more like startups. And even though they can't reach that, they are constantly pushed to get that way. And that's how this uh, crisis of care kind of manifests at an organizational level. You know, the places that teach us how to be people, how to be good workers, they themselves are constantly under stress. And so they are constantly trying to pivot like startups, constantly trying to try new things in order to teach people to code, to teach people how to survive, um, because they themselves are trying to figure out what works and how to survive. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to wrap up the conversation there, right? I mean, one, one of the things that, you know, it's in the subtitle of your book and it's a theme throughout is this political economy of hope, right? And this way that the, the hope changes and there's lots of different kinds of hope and lots of hope is put on to, you know, the new fab lab at the at MLK, right? The, the use of, uh, uh, we didn't even talk about school force. <laughs> school force, dream lab, amazing names. <laughs> yeah, all real. Yeah, all real. Dream lab, right? School force, which you know, just just for listeners, right? I mean, it's worth picking up Dan's book just to learn about school force, right? Which is this like data driven disciplinary software program at that's at schools that's based off of Salesforce, right? A kind of customer relations uh, management software. I, I mean, uh, you know, the, the big Salesforce tower in San Francisco, right? That, that's all ed tech now, right? That's all educational yeah. technology. I mean, literally the, the enterprise software that the startup was using to manage its customer base was also the software that the charter school I went to was using to manage its, its students. The sort of stuff we joke about in the Discord is like nightmarish hellscape worlds. <laughs> but then people and people and it may have felt distasteful, and people would say like, "Whoa, that's a lot of counting or whatever." But you know, teachers and students were like, "All right, we got to try because I know that if I don't get a, a 4.0 and if I don't get into the right school and if I don't learn C plus, then I'm not going to make a living wage." And those stakes are real, even if the mm-hmm. solutions aren't. Yeah, I think that right there. The stakes are real, even if the solutions aren't. Um, that's a great message to take away from this. I mean, this, this has been a, a, a fantastic discussion. Um, everybody should, again, grab Dan's new book, Hot Off the Presses from the MIT Press, The Promise of Access, Technology, Inequality, and the Political Economy of Hope. Um, follow Dan on Twitter for, for more takes like these <laughs> at the you know, green underscore DM. And we'll, we'll throw links to all this in the episode description as well. And, uh, just thank you again, Dan, for, for writing a, a fantastic book and coming on to speak with us about it. Thanks so much, guys. It was a real pleasure. I love talking to you about it. Thank you. And everybody else, thank you for listening. And you can find us for more premium content every single week at patreon.com slash this machine kills, where you can get another premium episode each week. So until then, later.
Thank you.